Pastor, for leading us in our prayers. Can I say particularly to church members, I know some of you weren't even aware of the service for George and Isa. There are copies of the tape of the service available from the tape library, along also, of course, with any services that we hold here in the church. I understand also you can now access the services on your computer if you've got one with the right technology on our website and you can actually sit and listen to them at home. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be here this morning. Uh, You need to be here to listen, not sitting at home in front of a computer. I do not believe in internet churches. I wonder, have you got a favorite hymn or Christian song? If you've been around churches for any length of time, you've probably got hundreds to choose from, and there are hymn books being produced ad infinitum, I almost said ad nauseum at the present time. And you can get all sorts of choices of every kind of hymn and song from the past and the present. So, if this were a phone-in radio program, which it is not, what would your choice be? I guess it would depend, would it not, on your emotions and experience at the present time. What you might have chosen a month ago, a year ago, or even yesterday, may be different today. For example, I've conducted many weddings in my time. No one as yet has ever chosen to sing at their wedding Horatio Boner's great hymn, Thy way not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. It's not the sort of hymn you sing at a wedding. Though if more people sang it before they got married, and especially verse 5, Choose thou my friends for me, we might have less than happy marriages. Be that as it may, (coughs) the hymns we sing reflect, do they not, our present emotions and experience. And the Hebrew hymn book, the book of Psalms, reflects also that whole range of emotions from deep depression, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, within me? To songs of praise, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So, let me begin by telling you a story. And I want you to imagine, as I tell it to you, that you are the main character in the story. And at the end, I want you to think, what hymn would you choose at the end? It's a true story. Happened three millennia ago. Just over a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And the main character is a woman. Her name is Grace. Or in her Hebrew language, Hannah. Grace, we'll call her, is a married woman. And in the context of the days in which she lived, in which we read that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, her husband was a good man. A member of the priestly tribe of his own people, Israel. A privileged people whom the one true God had chosen to be his own people and to represent him on earth. However, he was not a perfect man and contrary to God's ideal, had taken not one, but two wives. And this created, as is always the case, when you neglect or ignore the Maker's instructions for a happy life, this created enormous tensions and frictions in the family home. In particular, between Grace and the other wife, whose name was or meant Coral. 
And this was exacerbated by the fact that while Coral gave birth to children with almost monotonous regularity, poor Grace, year after year, could not conceive. And in a society where barrenness was stigmatised, this was bad enough. What made it even worse was that Coral, sensing and knowing that her husband loved Grace more than her, took every opportunity to taunt her about her childlessness. It usually ended up with Grace breaking down in tears. And so it went on. And the passage of the years and the patter of tiny feet in the home did not make things any better for Grace, only worse. The worst time of year, every year, was when the family made their annual pilgrimage to the shrine where they worshipped God many miles away. Each family in the nation collected a tithe, a tenth of all their goods, as an offering to the Lord who had blessed them. They would travel from their homes throughout the nation and congregate for a celebration at the shrine. And each family would take some of their produce, grain, wine, and animals, and present it to the priest in charge of the shrine. He would sacrifice some to the Lord, some he would keep for himself and his own family, and also, because God is a generous God, had instructed that the rest was to be given back to the family who brought it, in order that they could celebrate and have a good feast together. So at this big meal, I suppose the nearest equivalent would be our Christmas lunch with the family. Or, or more appropriately, American Thanksgiving. I see an American smiling and nodding. That's good. The husband shared out this family meal with all the family members. And naturally enough, Coral got a huge share because she had all these kids and they all got a bit each. Poor old Grace only got one lot. Even though her husband gave her an especially large amount to compensate, it just rubbed salt into the wounds. And she wept bitterly. And on one particular year, it was so bad that she couldn't even eat at all. She sat there weeping. Her husband, poor man, did all he could to console Grace. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons, he said. Kind of things husbands say. Well-meaning. It doesn't help at all. There was nothing he could do to solve her problem. However, there was someone who she believed could help her. Surely the God that they worshipped, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, commander of the heavenly armies of angels, surely he could help her. And so, leaving the celebrations, Grace made her way and crept into the shrine. And in bitterness of soul, she wept in anguish, her body heaving as she poured out her soul to the Lord in soundless sobs, vowing, if you give me a son, Lord, I'll give him back to you and he will serve you all the days of his life. The elderly priest in charge, sitting on a chair at the entrance, probably should have been standing at the front, saw the woman enter and observed her, soundlessly mouthing words, in great agitation. 
and mistakenly, for his eyesight was failing along with his spiritual vision, he concluded that she was drunk. And so he went over and he rebuked her. He soon learned from her that he was wrong. And so he said to the woman, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. May your servant find grace in your eyes. Grace replied. Grace, relying on God's grace, got up and left. And although her circumstances remained unchanged, her face was transformed and she left with a light heart and returned to join the feast and even ate some food. And the Lord heard and answered her prayer. And in due course, she conceived and gave birth to a son, Samuel. And some two or three years later, as soon as the boy was weaned, she returned to the shrine to fulfill her vow. And as she handed the boy over to the same elderly priest, she reminded him of their last meeting. As surely as you live, my Lord, she said, I am the woman who stood before you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. And the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him back to the Lord. For his whole life, he shall be given over to the Lord. Then she prayed again. But she didn't really. She sang a song of praise. Now, that's the story. Isn't the Bible a wonderful book? That's the story. Now, what hymn would you sing? What song would you have chosen? In our series, People in Prayer, we found the answer this morning. As we look at the story of Grace, or Hannah, rejoicing in the Lord, and we have a record of what she sang, or said. We don't have the tune, unfortunately, but we do have the words, and you'll find them in your Bibles. 2 Samuel, chapter 2. We're going to read them and think briefly about them. Page 272, if you have a pew Bible. You need a Bible in front of you. You can't see one, just look around and there are Bibles in the pews. Just reach over, ask someone to pass one to you. If you want to know, read again the full story of what I related to you in my own words, you'll find them in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. Sorry, it's 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel. That's my misprint, not the boys on the PowerPoint. 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, chapter 2, page 272. There you are, it's been corrected. Wonderful. Well done, Michael. Thank you, Mike. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. 
Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor for the foundations of the earth of the Lord's. Upon them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what Hannah sang. I'd be surprised given the circumstances, if any of us would have sung that. At first glance, the song seems to have very little connection with her personal circumstances, other than the reference in, the, in verse 5 about she who was barren has now born seven children. Hannah eventually had six children, but not seven. And these and other features in this song have led some critics to decide that Hannah never really sang this, in fact, it was placed in the text by a later editor, maybe up to 500 years later. I want to strongly defend the authenticity of this song to Hannah. Not least because other scholars have pointed out that many of the expressions and terms used here, particularly in the original language, terms like God as a rock, have a very ancient pedigree. But given that, I think it is quite possible, or even probable, that Hannah is using or adapting themes or words from existing songs or hymns. One that maybe she'd heard in that very shrine as her people had worshipped God. Certainly the concepts she reveals in the songs, what she tells us about God, were part of the truth about God that he had revealed to his people over the generations, his people Israel. Now, what is the particular truth about the Lord that is the theme of this song. If someone said, you know, like you get students, you get those essay questions summarised in one sentence what the message of this piece is. What's it about? Well, I would suggest to you that this is what it's about. The theme of the song is the Lord transforms human circumstances. Although He is the Lord Almighty, although He commands the heavenly hosts, He is interested Thankfully for every one of us here, he is interested in human affairs. In fact, he responds to individual situations, even those like a poor woman like Hannah. You see, maybe the story of Hannah resonates with you. Some of the details, some of the emotions. Maybe sitting in Charlotte Chapel this morning thinking, I can't sing any songs of praise. You don't know my circumstances. And the big question you've got is, does anybody care? And more importantly, can anybody help me? And I want to say, with all the conviction I have, based on God's Word and my own personal experience, limited though it is, that there is a God who hears and answers prayer. And whatever your situation is this morning, God can transform it. In fact, He can do it overnight if He chooses. And I also want to say to you, if you're sitting there saying, I don't have any problems this morning because I've got life all sorted out. I also want to say to you, be careful because the Lord can transform your situation overnight and you can lose it all in a moment. 
that's what this psalm is about. And I simply want to trace the development of it. I don't want to overwork it, because you can't analyse poetry really. But I want to suggest there's a progression in the song. If you look at it in front of you, and we'll just trace it briefly together. First of all, in the opening two verses, Hannah describes her personal experience. Her opening words are, notice, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord is the focus of her song and her worship. Matthew Henry, a great expositor of Scripture, whose commentary from the 18th century is still read and valued today, he wrote this, that Hannah rejoiced not in Samuel, but in the Lord. She overlooked the gift and praised the giver. Hannah praises the Lord for what he has done. Her circumstances have been transformed, praising the Lord for what he has done. So she sings, in the lawn, Lord, my horn is lifted high. The horn is a symbol of strength. My position of weakness has been transformed into one of strength. Then she says, my mouth boasts over, literally in Hebrew it means, my mouth has swallowed up my enemies. She didn't mean it literally. Her rival, if you want to put it in English jargon, her rival has been made to eat her words. For what the Lord has done for Hannah has silenced her taunts. But Hannah knows it is the Lord who has vindicated it. You see, maybe you've got a rival. Maybe you've got someone, maybe even in your home. I'm a pastor, I know the kind of tensions that exist in families. And they often exist when families get together. The most stressful times in most families? Christmas. Maybe you've got a rival at work who's just giving you hassle the whole time. And it's so unjustified. Sometimes you get angry and sometimes you feel like, and maybe you do feel like, and you do cry. And you say, what can I do about it? Nothing other than seek the Lord. Because it can transform circumstances. And in a moment, the circumstances change from humiliation to exaltation. And so this is why she rejoices in the Lord, because she recognises that the Lord has done this. He's the sovereign Lord who has changed their circumstances. Now, if you're sitting here listening and following at this point, you probably say, well, I can understand that. If that had happened to me, believe me, I'd be up at the testimony meeting. I'd be getting out all my praise and worship tapes and putting them in the car CD and on blasting them out through the house with my ghetto blaster down the street maybe. Well, maybe not. Maybe some of you have got ghetto blasters. You might put some worship music on instead of the other stuff to let the world know that you're rejoicing in the Lord. Anyway, it's just a suggestion. Never mind. But, but, there is something negative here as well you need to take on board something which we all find much harder to rejoice in or even accept and it is this and listen carefully because it's very important in the last analysis the Lord was the one who opened her womb and if you read in 1 Samuel chapter 1 twice it says in succeeding verses she didn't have any children because the Lord closed her womb the Lord closed her womb. Now with our modern medical knowledge, if we'd been around in those days we may have been able to diagnose a clinical cause for her condition but ultimately the people of God who believe in a sovereign Lord believe in the last analysis everything comes from God in every condition, in sickness and health, in poverty as well 
covetous veil or abounding in wealth. However, it is because she was aware of that that she prayed in such great fervour and agitation. Her pain prompted her to pray in a way that probably she would never have prayed and her rival probably never prayed because she had children without any effort. Although in the last analysis, her rival's children were also a gift of God. So, do we have the same conviction that God is sovereign in our life and in our circumstances? If so, like Hannah, we will earnestly seek him when faced with those painful events which are part of living in a fallen world. You see, on the one hand, it's God who did it, but God does it through the world in which we live. God's plan was be fruitful and multiply. God's plan was that people would live in harmony, not provoke one another to tears. But the reality is that God, rather than being frustrated by these things, uses them for our good. Now, it's easy for me to say that, isn't it? It's hard for some of us to believe it right now. But God uses it so that we might seek Him in a way that we never would if we were dependent upon ourselves and everything just happens naturally and easily and we're just living, basically, self-reliantly. Now, let me say something to us. As a church, our focus this year as a church is on prayer. Our, our theme, what we're saying to the Lord in effect is, Lord, teach us how to pray. It may be that the only way the Lord can do this in our church is to place us in circumstances like those of Hannah where we are driven to seek him individually and as a church. And only through that will we come to a place where we can truly rejoice in the Lord. This does not necessarily mean, let me say something very important again here, that God will always give us what we ask for. The story of Hannah in Scripture is not a surefire recipe for the terrible pain which I know some experience of childlessness. Rather, what the Lord does give us is that peace and assurance that He is in control of the events of our lives. You see, I don't believe Hannah started rejoicing in the Lord when her son was born or when she turned up at the shrine three years later. I believe Hannah started rejoicing in the Lord when she left the shrine assured that God's grace would be shown to her. So the Apostle Paul, familiar words, writes to the Christians in Philippi and to us today, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, your emotions, and your mind, your thinking, through Christ Jesus. And you can go out of here this morning with your circumstances unchanged, but God's peace, like a sentry, it's a lovely idea, God's peace, like a sentry, every thought and every emotion that comes in, he says, who goes there, friend or foe? And God's peace guards your heart and mind. So Hannah goes on to affirm, what kind of God is this? Not just praising him for what he's done, but praising him for who he is. There is no one holy like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Three times the same kind of refrain is used in this wonderful psalm of praise. 
There is no one holy like the Lord. The Lord is set apart from everything by His moral perfection and power. He is incomparable, without equal. In an age where every nation thought they had their own gods, Hannah says, there's no other gods, there's only the Lord. And He is trustworthy, He is like a rock that His people can depend upon. And that is what Hannah learned from personal experience. And I want to ask you simply this morning is, have you learned this from your own experience yet? Some of you have worked with the Lord. I've worked with the Lord by God's grace over 40 years. Some of you have worked with the Lord a lot longer than that. Sort of George and Isa this week, walking with the Lord for 70 odd years as Christians. They could affirm this, that God is faithful and even the painful events in life, we look back on them and see God's perfect plan and God uses them for our good to help us to seek Him in a way that we never would. If you're starting out as a Christian, start to learn this. But God is sovereign, but He's working in your life to bring about your ultimate good. But not just that, through that, the blessing, untold blessing, sometimes things you will never imagine through you in succeeding generations. So, what's your favourite hymn today? But Hannah does not stop there. We're moving a little more quickly. There are two more things, points we want to make. And I will go a little more quickly looking at the clock. Having, this, having affirmed this truth about the Lord's transforming power from her own experience, she then moves from personal experience to a general principle. Do you see that? From verse 3 onwards. Look what she says in verse 3. It's a warning. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows and by Him deeds are weighed. You see, the only alternative to rejoicing in the Lord is what? Boasting about yourself. I got it made. Got my life worked out. Got it all planned. Don't need God. And Hannah says, and the Word of God says, watch it. The Lord knows what you are saying. He evaluates or weighs what you are doing. In an excellent commentary on 1 Samuel, Joyce Baldwin comments, In the presence of this God, human arrogance is totally misplaced and even dangerous in view of the way of the Lord's balancing out things, which is what the word weighed means. It illustrates the idea with examples of providential reversals that God has brought out. In other words, God weighs out the personal circumstances of our lives. And notice in the verses that follow how people's fortunes have changed and transformed, sometimes for their better, sometimes for worse. But what he says, strength and weakness, the bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength, can you see? Hunger and plenty. Those who are full hide themselves out for food, but those who are hungry, hunger no more. Barrenness and fruitfulness. She was barren, has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Death and life even. The Lord brings death. He makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Poverty and wealth, verse 7. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. Has them inherit a throne of honour. Humiliation, exaltation. The Lord has the ability just to change human circumstances and there is a weighing out. And such a transformation can occur at any time and with great speed in either direction. If you know the Bible, as you read those words, you'll think of a great example in the Bible in which the word way has a prominent part. 
story from the time of Daniel in exile in Babylon. And King Belshazzar, we read, was having a huge celebration with 1,000 of his nobles. And they decided to bring out the gold cups and plates that they'd stolen and taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And we read, as they drank wine from them, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and stone. Daniel chapter 5, verse 4. Our gods have done this. We're the most powerful empire on earth. God of Israel, got his stuff from the temple here. Drinking from it. One of the cups. Got my dinner on a plate from there. Suddenly, a finger, a human hand appears. You imagine. And begins to write on the wall. And the king is absolutely petrified. What does it mean? He calls in his wise men and not one of them can give him the answer. And finally he calls for Daniel, who belongs to the people of Israel. And Daniel seeks the Lord and Daniel tells him what the meaning is. And the meaning is, he says, King Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. This night your kingdom will be taken from you. And that very night he's assassinated. In a moment, all that he relied on the greatest person on earth. It's all taken away in a moment. There is a warning here. The greatest sin we are guilty of is self-reliance and idolatry which excludes God from our thinking. And if you're that sort of person this morning, I've got my life worked out. I'm a student. I'm going to finish my degree. I'm going to find a nice wife and family. I'll get a big car and a house and I'll settle down. You've got it all worked out right to the pension and everything else. Well, even the stock market at the moment should tell you that is pretty stupid. But the main stupidity is to ignore God and leave Him out of your thinking. So, the Lord weighs things out. That's what verse 8 means. There's a, the Lord has a moral order for society. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them He has set the world. Verse 8. Now, if you're thinking carefully, and I hope you are, and you're still with me, we're getting towards the end, you'd be saying something at this point. Hang on a minute. You're saying that God weighs out human circumstances and balances them out. But surely, I can think of people who are very rich atheists who die of old age in their beds with their family gathered around them. And I can think of poor godly Christians who have suffered and died for their faith. And what happens to them? Surely, it's not really true. And while the principle may hold true generally... It is clear that there are exceptions to the rule and I want to tell you, the Bible does not ignore them or cover them up as though they don't exist. In fact, the Bible wrestles with them. And it pictures believers. Just read the book of Job if you want an example. As believers wrestle with this seeming inequality in our world and come to a deeper faith in the Lord. But in the last analysis, what we come to is what Hannah comes to at the end. Which is, in the end, there is a future equable weighing out of human life and circumstances. And so she moves from past experience to a present principle, thirdly and finally, to a universal application. Look at the final verses. And notice the shift to the future tenses. Future judgment by the Lord. For she says, verse 9, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now notice again we see the transformation, the Lord's contrasting of human circumstances. The saints ultimately are secure. 
those who are set apart for God belonging to Him, despite their seeming uncertain prospects at present in this life. And the wicked will be silenced despite their boasts. But this time, the final outcome is fixed and final for everyone. Because he said this will extend, notice what she says in this hymn, the Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. All humanity one day will stand before God, the final judge, and the word of God says he's entrusted judgment to his son. Jesus himself said, we'll separate them out. The day of judgment, sheep and goats, lost and saved, weak and tense. There is a final accounting. And that is a sobering prospect, unless, this morning, your hope is in the Lord, and you are rejoicing in the Lord. And I give you this solemn warning, not my warning, but the warning of the Word of God, that you need to do something about it before it is too late. So that's the song, Hannah's song. Not quite, for it ends on a cryptic note. The last part of verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is another reason why some people think this wasn't natural to Hannah because Israel had no king in those days. I'm tempted to say that people who say these kind of things know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. If you know the scriptures, you'll know that when God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, we read that he said to Abraham, kings will come from you. Whether Hannah knew of this, we cannot be certain. And we can be certain that she didn't understand the full significance of what she was saying, because these words, these final words, are a prophecy. Inspired by the Holy Spirit about the one she calls a king, or his anointed ones, the first time in scripture where the word king and anointed the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which is Messiah. The two things come together here. And Hannah would never see the fulfillment of this prophecy, for it lay a thousand years in the future. But she saw the beginning, for she played a crucial role in the first stages of its fulfillment with the birth of her son, Samuel. And none of us knows what vital links in the chain, even our lives may be, in generations yet to come in the decisions we take, our obedience to the Lord, and in our following of Him. So although Hannah didn't know it, her words were a prophecy about Samuel. And Samuel, this special child, was raised up by the Lord to turn the people of Israel away from idolatry and back to the true God. And he was God's instrument to anoint Israel's greatest king, King David. It's a prophecy about David. But great though David was, there was another greater king to come. Again, in the words of a wonderful hymn, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. And so we end as we began, with a miraculous birth. And another woman. This one even greater than Hannah, the miracle. For this woman was a virgin. And the news was brought by an angel. And in praise of the Lord who blessed us so much, Mary sang a song. We're going to read it in a moment, then sing it. But when you read it, you'll know that she chose it from the Old Testament. 
because it resonates with the hymn of Hannah. The prophecy of Hannah is finally fulfilled, for it is a prophecy about Jesus, the King, the Messiah. Turn to this page in Luke 1, and then we'll stand and sing it. Page 1026. Mary's song. If this were an Episcopal church, you would have already sung this. The Magnificat. Anglicans sing this every Lord's Day in the prayer book. And you might think, well, why do they sing that? It's a song of Mary. No, it's not. It's a song about the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his army. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has remembered his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever even as he said to our fathers through people like Hannah so what's your favourite hymn well it depends on your emotions and experience but I want to say today whatever your emotions and experience are you can sing Hannah's song and you can sing Mary's song because nothing can change that even if all your stocks and shares go down the drain this week, you can still rejoice in the Lord and in what He will do and has done. Even if your family falls apart, God forbid. Even if you lose your job or you have a diagnosis from the doctor that is a desperate thing, you can still sing this song. You can still rejoice in the Lord. So let's stand and sing a modern paraphrase of it.